Thanks for joining us in our series on the book of Ephesians. In this letter, we get a thorough view of God's cosmic plan of reconciliation and reunification in Jesus Christ. Its truths are vital to the Christian's understanding of personhood and the church. Cornerstone exists to declare and demonstrate Christ in all of life so as to make people complete in him. Good morning. I couldn't have been so happy as to see on my icon that half sun, half cloud today. Um, Very glad to be back again together. As we came out, I I said to Matt, I just hope the weatherman is right. It looks like it might be okay, but he said, don't pay any attention to those clouds over there. I think we're going to be all right. So we're so glad to be gathered again together, around the word together, and uh, we we will praise God for the beautiful weather. Uh, If you'll open your Bibles, let's go ahead and turn to Ephesians 4. We are going to read starting in verse 25 and then finish up at verse 2 of chapter 5. So Ephesians 4, 25 through 5, 2. This is God's authoritative and good word to us. Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor. For we are members one of another. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands, so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for the building up, as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption." Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children, and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and a sacrifice to God. Let's pray together. Our Father, we turn to you in need of your help this morning. It is not that we we don't need you at other times. We certainly do. So teach us to pray without ceasing. But at this time, we humbly bow before you in the teaching of your word, asking you to renew our minds. We desire to be made more and more like you, and to experience the joy of faithful obedience to our King. Lord, we know this is impossible on our own, so we turn to you for grace. We also recognize that there are children and maybe other adults here in our midst that do not know you, who do not know and love you, who are not yet Christians. God, we ask that you, the opener of eyes, the giver of true life, would save your people today. God, do your rescuing work and your sanctifying work in our midst. Bless us, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. I would ask you, what does it mean to love? What does love, that idea, mean to you? Now, some of you may be in a dating relationship or in a marriage, or many of you young and older may still be single. But regardless of your relationship status, Each of us have an idea of what love is. And of course, that's because love is not contained or confined only to romantic or conjugal relationships. 
Love is something that each of us experience in some way as we hear or watch or read or actually experience relationships with others. Now, it can be experienced in a family or it can be experienced between friends or it can be experienced in some sort of a community. But again, I'll ask the question, what is love? We had a, a good friend uh, just recently give us kind of a fun gift when we were getting ready to go on a road trip as a family. Uh, he made us a couple different mixtapes. Uh, that's an old term. It's actually, it was actually a compact disc uh, that he made for us. But each of them contained several different songs uh, around a certain theme. We got one CD that was kind of uh, Christian songs and one that was kids' fun theme songs. One was like soundtracks and one was like oldies and all kinds of different ones. And it was, it was a fun gift because we listened through and some that we hadn't heard for a long time or hadn't heard at all. So that was, that was really fun to get something like that. Um, but I bring that up because the kids, they really liked all the CDs. They, they enjoyed going through them. They, they weren't like the same old album that has one person singing the whole way through. But they really liked the oldies CD the best. Um, I bring this up because on a lot of occasions when we're riding in the van, let's say, and we're going along and they're listening to all these different things, they're wondering and they'll say to me, Dad, what are they talking about? Like, what is this song about? Like, I know the words. I understand what he's saying, but that's certainly not what he means, right? What is this about? They catch that there are analogies and there are word pictures and poetry, right? But they're, sure, they're not exactly sure what's going on. Now, they're keen to pick those things up, but sometimes the artistry or the poetry of a song kind of hides the plain meaning right away. Um, and, and what happens here is that in all kinds of music, not just in love songs, or not just in maybe oldies, but several different types of music, those things get buried in and understood a little bit differently than we would normally think about it, or not so straightforward. People, though, love to sing songs about love. Well, often they'll ask me what these oldies are about, and so many of them are actually about love in some way. Whether it's love of a community, love of uh, between a man and a woman, love of a friendship. Sometimes these songs are even like love of familiar places and love of home and love for all these different things. They sing about romance. They sing about sexuality and attraction between people. They sing about friendship and about family bonds. You know we're getting to that time of year. I, I, it's way too early, but you know we're getting to that time of year where we're hearing them talk about the most wonderful time of the year. And all these songs about good feelings and, and, and warm fuzzies, all this stuff is going on. And we love to sing about love. But I'm not convinced that we actually understand what love is. Today, in Ephesians 5, 1 and 2, we will listen as Paul calls us to walk in love. For us to understand this, we have to make sure that we go by his terms the great thing for us is that he doesn't leave it up to us to define what love means. We don't have to figure out the definition of love for ourselves. He will explain it to us and even give us an example so that we aren't left to our own thoughts on the topic. As we consider verses 25 through 32 last week, as we did that, we saw that Paul was not just giving us some arbitrary commands, but rather he was giving us a specific teaching on how not to walk as the Gentiles. He did that back up in verse 17, telling us not to walk. But last week, he kind of showed us how to make sure we weren't walking in that way. 
We saw that this wasn't, again, only about speaking honestly, although we certainly shouldn't be telling lies, the speaking truth, but was about living out the truth in a way that communicated the realities that we have learned in Christ Jesus. We talked about that last week specifically, made, made mention of it, that we learned and lived them out or spoke them with our lives to one another. But we learned even more than that. He taught us that living this way works to build up the body of Christ, to edify one another, to make us in Christ stronger as his people. It works to maintain the unity of the Holy Spirit, the very thing that Paul called us to back at the beginning of chapter 4. So Paul is giving us commands so that we might live as the new humanity in Christ the right way, to live in true reality and do so with joy. So he kind of organized it, last week we talked about this, he kind of organized it around four pagan ideas or problems, issues, sinful actions that were very normal for these former Gentiles to be doing. They were used to this type of living. He talked about anger. He talked about stealing. He talked about corrupting talk. And then he talked lastly about this deep-seated, prolific anger that led to all types of wicked treatment of each other. And as he worked through each of these, Paul also offered solutions or counteractions to each of these problems. He told us, don't do this, but rather we should do this, not to tear down the body, but rather to build up the body. Instead of allowing anger to stay inside and fester for a long time, we as Christians are to deal with it almost immediately, confronting the offender in love. Instead of stealing and defrauding someone of what they need, we are to work honestly so that we have something to share with one another who might be in need. Instead of tearing others down with our corrupt talk, that which tears people down and is like rot, gangrene, instead of doing that, we are to use good words to build one another up. And finally, instead of bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, slander, and all malice, we are to become kind, tender-hearted ones who forgive one another when we've been wronged. This is kind of where we left off last week. Of course, we did talk about verse 32 a little bit, but today I think picking up in 32 is going to help us situate ourselves where we find ourselves in 5, 1, and 2. In verse 32, Paul says, Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. Now that phrase, as, as God in Christ forgave you, this little phrase at the end of the verse helps us understand exactly what Paul means by be kind, tender-hearted, ones who forgive our brothers. It's not up to us to define this. It's not up to our society to decide how this works out. Instead, he is going to make sure we're crystal clear on this. We have experienced forgiveness in Christ Jesus. And this very much helps us to understand how we then are to forgive others. We are ones who had been wronged, but we had wronged him. Again, as, 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 as talking about to God, we're the ones that had wronged him. We had hated God. We had not recognized him as king. And yet, in the midst of all that, he made something happen that we would be forgiven of our great sin. Now, briefly, I, I want to notice the wording here. It is not just that God forgave us. Take a look. It says God in Christ forgave us. 
Without Christ, there could be no true forgiveness. It was God who in his great mercy provided Jesus Christ as the only way to offer true forgiveness of sins to those who are worthy of judgment. Now, what this is, is the gospel message. That's what we're talking about here. This is the good news to all peoples, that we can actually be saved, rescued from the certain and the deserved wrath of the almighty God against us. It is not that we would say that this is somehow a message that we would get bored of, but let me remind you again. If you're not familiar with this, please, from these moments, listen. The gospel isn't about living a better life before God, believing that he's real and somehow trying your best to kind of do good stuff and go to church and believe in God in general. That is not the good news. That is not the gospel. The Bible tells us that the gospel starts with a proper view of God. We start with this as our foundation. Seeing him correctly is the foundation for understanding the gospel in the first place, that he is a whole being meaning that all the parts of him don't act differently or separately somehow, but rather in unison make up the, all the attributes together, the glory of who this person is, this God. All at the same time, he is holy, he is almighty, he is just, he is true, he is good, and he loves his own perfect glory. The Bible reveals that he is the righteous creator of all things, including you and me. Like, Anything that ever was, he created it. There was not anything that he did not create besides himself. When we get a true glimpse of this God, when we see him properly as the true God of the universe, we realize that we are then accountable to him as creatures for everything that we do. When we see God rightly, we can say and see with ourselves that we rightly are a different person than he is. And we can rightly see ourselves in light of who he is. We were made to be his likeness. We were made in the image of God. He says this from the very beginning of the Bible. We're creatures made in the image of God, in his likeness, blessed from the very outset of creation. We were made to rule over the creation as vice regents, made for exercising godly dominion over the creation to the end that we'd be fruitful having godly dominion and filling the earth with the rule and reign of our God. This is what we were created to do. But we have all rejected this path, the path of righteous submission and joyful obedience to this king. Each one of us was both born in sin. Get this, there's two parts of this. We were both born in sin, and we have actively rebelled and sinned against God. We do not bow to God as the righteous creator, but rather, we choose to love ourselves. We choose to answer to us, or maybe the general idea of what we're supposed to live like. We don't bow to God as the one true creator king. The Bible tells us over and over again that humans are wicked people who have rejected their creator. And if you don't get this, please listen. This is absolutely terrible news. Terrible. Why? because of who God is, because of his character and his perfections, because we know that God's passion for his own character and glory cannot abide with sin and rebellion against him. His justice will not allow unrighteousness to go unpunished. 
His righteousness and justice demands holiness from all of his subjects. He is jealous for his glory, insistent on righteousness. And when his creatures wickedly rebel against him, God's justice demands that their wickedness be punished. It all is staked on the character of God. His glory would otherwise be tarnished, diminished, proven to be less than what he says that it is. The bad news of the gospel is that since all have sinned against God, all of us are children of wrath. We are all running headlong in the judgment of God, the one who is all-powerful and jealous of his own glory. This is bad news. But this is truth. And that's why it's such good news. Because that's not the end of the story. How can it be that this gospel, literally the good news, goes this way? That we are headed for judgment? Well, because we're not done. From eternity past, the Bible puts it this way, before the foundations of the world, God in his great mercy loved us and designed a plan for the salvation of his beloved children. That plan was not to sweep the sins of the people under the rug, just say, you know, I just forgive you, it's going to be fine. That's not what's going on at all. But instead, to give himself, one who would take the wrath of God for us. We're talking about Jesus of Nazareth, the Messiah, Jesus the Christ. In Christ, God made a way for us to have forgiveness instead of judgment. Jesus' death was not just some nice example of being sacrificial for others. That sounds nice, and it's certainly part of what's going on for us to live as Christians, but it's not just some example for us to follow. Rather, it was God, get this, crushing the sun in our place. Isaiah 53.10 shows us it was his will to crush him. This is immense and incredible that he would do this for us. It was at that moment that the God of all creation upheld his holiness, satisfied his justice, and showed unbound mercy to his children. That he gave himself to receive the wrath of God so that we, by his mercy, might receive forgiveness of sin and adoption as his beloved children. The cross is at once a place of wretched evil and ultimate glory. The evil one has struck a terrible blow to our Lord at the cross, but in this moment, the holiness of God is defended and the glory of God is proclaimed. For those who love and trust this, this king, God has taken all of their sins, laid them on Jesus, and dealt with them for eternity. It's a place, a place of great glory. At the cross, God is proven to be God in the very darkest of hours. Silenced in the grave, Jesus lays, having taken our judgment upon himself. But again, you know, this isn't the end of the story. This is why we meet together and rejoice on Sunday morning, the Lord's day. There is hope. Although the evil one has bruised the heel of our king, the prophecy told us that the very same king would crush or destroy the head of the serpent. And we know that he did this. Three days after he was crucified, Christ rose from the grave, triumphing over Satan, sin, and death, ascending to the right hand of the Father, and putting all things under his feet. 
It says, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. He's the undisputed champion and victor of the world. That's who we're worshiping today. This is the good news of the gospel. God is holy and just. There must be punishment for sin. But he has given himself for a substitute for us. This is the good news. You hear that? There's like a rumbling behind. Just help me here. This is amazing good news that God would do this. He has given us Jesus Christ. But here we are at a crossroads. You're sitting here listening to me. You've heard it. This is not the first time you've heard it. I know it. Having heard this glorious story, you're left with one giant question. The question is, so what? The question is, what will you do with this? Is it true? Because if it's true and you reject it, you damn yourself to hell. But if you see the loving kindness of this God who says, I have given you my son, receive him, trust him, you may have this forgiveness. It is full and free in Jesus Christ for his children. Here we stand asking the question, so what? The gospel's been preached clearly, but this is the part that we often mess up. We end up kind of thinking that it's okay to act like the demons act. That somehow if we just believe that God is, that that's enough. What will you do about this story? If this story is true, we realize that we are, as created ones, created to live in joyful submission to this God. From what we were supposed to do from the very beginning. Now, we may not have been around when Adam and Eve did this. We may not have been around when Christ died or when he rose from the grave. We may not have experienced those things in the same way. But what we have is the truth spoken through Jesus and his apostles and prophets in the word of God, through the Bible, the Holy Spirit making these things alive in our hearts. The gospel is not just good news for everyone. There must be a response to his grace. It is for all people to hear and to hear the good news of Jesus Christ. But not all are automatically universally saved because this is true. There must be a response to his grace. God requires a response of repentance and complete trust in him alone. In short, he requires faith. He requires faith and not just a mental assent to the fact that he is real, but the complete commitment to him as Lord and Savior, ready to obey him in everything that he says. Friend, if you're here today and maybe you're listening uh, maybe you're somewhere else, even in events to come, in another time where you listen maybe to this podcast or potentially watch it online. Can I just call you to something? This gospel is for you. I proclaim this here as just a mouthpiece, but it is God's work to work in your heart for you to respond in faith and to trust him today. The Bible clearly states that you can know this God, that you can have forgiveness of your sin. And that by this great grace, you can be God's beloved child. So I just call you to repent of your sin and to trust God alone for your salvation. Now, all of this leads us up to the understanding of forgiveness in Ephesians 4 and 5. For those who have trusted Christ and now live in obedience to him, we have experienced this kind of immense forgiveness and this helps us understand what he means by forgiving one another. 
We are to be ones who had wronged him, had hated him, had not recognized him as king, and yet he forgave us in his great grace. So now, as we consider his command in verse 32, we have a reference point and an example of what our forgiveness ought to look like. It ought to be the forgiveness like God's forgiveness. But let me be clear, because you just walked through that whole thing with me. Let me be clear. We are not required, when we are having an, some sort of a problem with another person, to re, we're not required to produce a substitutionary atonement for them so that we can forgive them somehow and take care of their sins so we can get back to normal. God had to. We do not have to. Make sure we understand the foundation of our forgiveness. Why? Because it has already been done. There is not one sin in a believer that Christ didn't die for. And somehow now we've got to kind of work it out. Oh, Christ missed that one. No, he paid it all. That is why we sing Jesus paid it all. It is true. There is not one thing that somehow here that we have to work out and cause justice to happen here. In Christ, the wrath of God was poured out to deal with every single one of our sins. So let me be clear, we're not the ones that offer some sort of substitutionary atonement so that we can be reconciled. Not only in Christ Jesus is he our motivation for forgiving others, like we've experienced this and now we should do the same for others, but he is the grounds for all true future forgiveness that we would offer. Justice has been served in Jesus Christ and now forgiveness for one another flows from his sacrifice. Can I just stop here and make sure that we all understand what Paul is saying? Because remember, when we're talking about all this stuff, he is now in the second half of the letter telling us how we ought to act. You need to listen to this. I need to listen to this. If Christ truly did atone for every sin that his people has ever committed, there is not one thing that you and I need to do to make sure that that person is therefore righted and that we need to figure out on this realm here and now how to make sure that that stuff gets taken care of. In Christ, all has been forgiven for his people. Sometimes I think that, if we're just honest, we kind of want to play God to make sure that we get justice to be served in our time, in our place, because something has been done to us that we don't like. Either it has kind of knocked at our dignity or our reputation in some way, and we so badly want justice to be served that we'll do almost anything to make sure that gets worked out and everyone can see that it's right now. I'm not saying that we shouldn't confront sin. We should have honest confession and restoration. That's biblical, of course. But I am saying that oftentimes our motives are wicked when we've been wronged. And what we actually want is to make sure that others see that we are right instead of building up another Christian brother or sister. Brothers and sisters, remember 1 Peter 2, 20 through 23. Peter tells us this, Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example, so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile and return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. When a brother or sister asks for forgiveness, remember that in Christ, there is grounds for us to forgive one another freely. Therefore, brothers and sisters, let us forgive one another like Christ has forgiven us. Now, with that understanding, we can move into verse one of chapter five. 
he says, therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children. Okay, if you and I were just to not know about Ephesians 1 through 4, and we started with chapter 5, verse 1, this thing, he says, be imitators of God as beloved children, we'd be like, what are you talking about? I mean, I'm just a peon. I am a person. How could I possibly be an imitator of God, the almighty, the omnipotent and, and all-knowing one, the one who has saved us? How could I possibly imitate him? Well, we realize that we can't imitate God in every single way. We understand that. We can follow him. We can love him. It's even fine to say that we should imitate Paul as he imitates Christ, right? We see that in much of his writings, actually, throughout his writings to the churches. But sometimes it feels like if he tells us to imitate God, like that would almost be blasphemous. But it's a good thing for us, first of all, that we've been working through 1, 2, and 3, and 4, these chapters, to know our context and understand what he's actually saying to us. It is in response to our old way of acting that now we are to forgive and act and imitate God to one another. Before they had learned Christ, remember this, they had handled their relationships with bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, slander, and malice. But now they are to be kind, tenderhearted, forgiving. In short, they are to be like God, not Satan. There's a big setup here to show us. Stop acting like your old wicked father, the devil. Instead, be imitators of God as what? Beloved children. Do you realize that you have a new dad? That he is good and righteous? And by the way, you should be a chip off the old block? That you should have a family resemblance? Man, I love this little phrase. He says, be imitators of God as beloved children. He's saying, if you are really Christians, and you know this from verse 24, remember, if you have put on the new self, he says this directly, then you have been created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. You are his children, like father, like son. This is grounds for family resemblance and that we ought to act like who we are. Imagine that. We're not spectators of his love. We didn't get to see what happened to his people from the outside. We experienced the love and forgiveness of God. We are his people. We have been adopted as his children, made after the likeness of God. And we are more than just children, mind you. It says that we are his beloved children. This is an important designation because it shows this wasn't just some sort of legal transaction. It wasn't some sort of economic transaction to get someone into the house. But rather, this transaction was based on the grounds of unstoppable, all-powerful love of God. Even from our reading here in Ephesians so far, we've seen that the beloved children are enlightened in the eyes of their heart, that they have been made alive, that they are given understanding, that their very identity has been rooted and grounded in love. John says it in 1 John 3 this way, see what kind of love the Father, notice his language, has given to us, that we should be called children of God. And so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know him. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. If you remember we are children of another kind, this is not right. We are not like we used to be. 
we are now like our father. Paul said in Ephesians 2, 3, that we were children of wrath. Remember that? He, he explained this. Uh, and now, what kind of children are we? Beloved children. Both in Ephesians 2, 3 and 5, 1, where we're at today, he is saying that we are children in a relationship with God. But in 2.3, our relationship was disobedient, wicked children who had rejected, blasphemed, and hated our Father, and thus had prepared ourselves for the wrath of God. But here in 5.1, everything has changed. We're still called children, but notice this. The one who is ready to pour out his almighty wrath on us has forgiven us and set his love on us. Hallelujah. Praise God. And so Paul says, be imitators of God as beloved children. Be like God. How? Well, I, I think you can see here by the context, he's talking about kindness, tenderheartedness, an attitude of regular forgiveness and free to give that to those who ask of it. But let me read also verse one and two again. Therefore be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Here's the thing. We've seen that Paul has given us some commands that shows us how to live in light of true reality. That's what we've been working on through here. He's shown us that this is the building up of the body of Christ, that these commands help us do that. But today, he is going to sum all this up by telling us this one big command. If you want to know how you should act toward one another, here's the bottom line. Walk in love. Live in love. We've seen that as ones who have learned Christ, we should be living in truth, not in the falsehood of what we can see only with our physical eyes. But now he turns us to do this in love. Funny, I think you've probably heard those two together before, right? If we think back in chapter 4, yeah, verse 15. We are to speak the truth in love, growing up into Christ who is our head. This is where he is now going, teaching us that we are to speak and walk in love. The bottom line isn't memorize all the rules and make sure that we understand the ins and outs so that we don't mess up all these different Christian behaviors. No, the bottom line is stop thinking about yourself as the primary person in your universe and love those who are around you. He makes it clear that we don't get to define love for ourselves. It's all those things we learned from last week. Think about it. Speak the truth to your neighbor. Deal with your anger immediately and rightly. Work honestly and share with those in need. Use good words that build each other up. Forgive one another. But because we can't possibly cover all the potential scenarios, Paul sums it all up so that we will understand the goal, the end, the goal is to be like Jesus Christ and act as he acts as well, perfectly, acting in love. We started out asking, what does love mean at the beginning of our time here together? What does Paul mean when he says, walk in love? I'd encourage you here to suspend for a moment your popular understanding of love. Even your notions, just going to push back a little bit here, of what you think church love might supposed to be what it's supposed to look like. Because I think it is far more drastic than you and I might be willing to admit. Paul says to walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. We began this morning talking about forgiveness in the context of the gospel. 
But Paul returns yet more explicitly to explain what has happened in the gospel. Not only was Jesus the recipient of the wrath of God, that God the Father was not the only, the actor in the crucifixion. Notice what's happening here. Paul tells us here that Jesus willingly loved us and gave himself up for us. Then he acted in immense, far-reaching, sacrificial love. It is not only that God was amazing in his mercy to provide a way, but Jesus Christ, the second person of the Trinity, shows us what this forgiveness and love looks like by loving us and giving himself up for us. Immense sacrifice. Consider the contrast also. If you remember 419, these are the words. He's talking about Gentiles here. They became callous and have given themselves up to sensuality. We were those who sacrificed ourselves, gave ourselves up to sensuality. All those things that pleased us at all costs, even to the point that it hurt everybody else just so that we could get what we wanted. The things that plead, pleased our senses. And here, Paul uses the exact same wording. Christ loved us and gave himself up for us. Christ gave himself up for us to God so that he might receive our punishment. Instead of acting in a way that pleased himself at all cost, he gave himself so that we might become children of God. What an immense picture of true godly love. So if you haven't gotten it yet, guys, here's a simple way to define the type of love that Paul's requiring for us Christians. Serve one another. Prioritize somebody else over yourself. Give of yourself to another. He's not talking about having certain feelings about one another. He's not talking about how eventually a group of people become real chummy and things work out well and they just really enjoy the time together. He's saying it comes down to the obedience that works itself out in love to one another. One anothering. All the different commands in the New Testament show this, that we would consider someone else higher or more important than ourselves. This is love. But there's one more piece here that is absolutely brilliant. You see, this type of love doesn't end in our being kind to one another. It doesn't have its final fulfillment in placing worth on someone else and forgiving them. It isn't really about how awesome the people at Cornerstone Bible Church or other Christians in your life, how awesome they are. And we just leave it right there. Let us read the final phrase in this verse and see if we can pick it up. And walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. This love is not ultimately directed at the worth of one another. It is not, but at the worth of our Lord and the glory of his name, that he is worthy of receiving the sacrifice and offering. If it came short and just left on us, it would not be enough. It would not be worthy. But what Paul shows us here is that he is saying Jesus Christ did this, giving himself up for us to God as a fragrant offering and sacrifice. Jesus went to the cross and loved us and gave himself up for us, but not for the reason you might think. His grand motivation, his ultimate purpose was the glory of God himself. 
Jesus went to the cross, yes, for you and I, but ultimately as a sacrifice and offering to the Father. Praise God that we are not the most valuable things in the universe. Hear it again, church. Our God is the most valuable thing in the universe, and it was to him the sacrifice that Jesus made was given. His grand motivation with Jesus' sacrifices was to someone else, to his father. Paul is showing us that Christ died on the cross with an eye toward heaven saying, here is the required sacrifice. I give it to you gladly. Accept this offering to you, the most high God. And what was God's response? Man, acceptance. Pleasing to him. A sweet-smelling fragrance. The way that Paul states it here isn't something he's pulling out of thin air. He says that Christ's sacrifice and offering was a fragrant offering to God. More literally, you could say something like this, that Christ giving himself up was an offering and sacrifice to God for a sweet-smelling aroma. In the Old Testament law, when a sacrifice was improperly offered, or maybe it wasn't the right animal, or maybe it was the wrong amount, in some way it wasn't done properly, it was known as an abomination a stench before God, something that was very displeasing. But a sacrifice offered properly, according to the law, with a heart of faith, was acceptable and pleasing to God, a worthwhile offering. And only this kind of sacrifice was called a sweet-smelling sacrifice to God. The notion of a sweet-smelling sacrifice really is code for God is pleased. God accepts this sacrifice. Christ's sacrifice was pleasing to God, and it met the requirements to do what it was supposed to do. It was an offering that pleased God. And now we come to understand what Paul is commanding us to do, how we then are to love. We are called to walk in love, not with the worth of our community or relationships between each other as the end and reason for the love, but with the glory and worth of our God as the foundational motivation and end of all of our sacrificial actions to one another. When we do these things, when we walk in love and it is done to God, it is a sweet smelling savor or aroma to him. Loving one another is not because someone else is so lovely that they're worth doing that for. Loving another as a Christian, the reason we love one another is obedience to our worthy Father as a sweet-smelling aroma, a sacrifice, an offering to God primarily. What I'm saying is that when we choose another person over ourselves because God has called us to do so, we do so in faith, we too present ourselves, get this, as a living sacrifice. Now, that's a really bold statement, except that you all know it's said somewhere else in the scriptures. Romans 12 tells us this. Paul himself tells us, I appeal to you therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy, get this word, and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. The way that we worship God is not only here on Sunday morning together, although that's certainly true, but on Monday and Tuesday and all the days of the week as we faithfully love one another. It is to be, then, a sacrifice to God based on the example of our Savior and empowered by the renewing of our minds by the Holy Spirit. So, I'll ask you, because we're at this point, 
Are you imitating God as beloved children? Are you walking in love the way that he defines love? Unto God for your brothers and sisters, not having yourself be the very first prominent place of priority. Are you walking in love? Are you giving yourself up for one another to God? Paul is calling us to holiness in each of our Christian relationships to build one another up, to speak the truth and to speak it in love. So I'll leave you this. Look to Christ and let us love one another as he did. Let's pray together. Dear God, we fall so short of this. We know it's true that our old man has been put off, that you're renewing the spirit of our mind and that our new man has been put on. But God, we love the deeds of the body. We love to get back in that old Gentile way. But Lord, you call us to love one another. You call us to not be angry and hold on to sin. You call us not to steal, but rather to give to one another. You call us to stay away from corrupting talk. You call us, Lord, not to have these bits of anger that overwhelm us and treat each other the wrong way, but rather to love one another, forgiving, tenderhearted, and being kind. God, we need your help to do this, so we ask that you renew our minds today. Would you give your people here a holy zeal for righteousness because of what you've done in the gospel? We love you and thank you for this glorious work that you have done of forgiveness. You are great and good. We pray that hallowed be your name. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this podcast. For further sermons and more information on Cornerstone Bible Church, please visit cbcvirginia.com.